Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 139. Britain Chooses War. Quote, In the early months of 1775, in both Houses of Parliament, statesmen probed into the American crisis and offered generous solutions that might have preserved the British Empire into the distant future. The oratory of the Earl of Chatham and Edmund Burke evoked admiration, but won few, if any, votes. George III and his friends were firmly in the saddle. They were quite unfit to guide the British ship of state in a mighty storm. They did not recognise its magnitude. They refused to accept the counsel of Chatham and Burke, nor did they follow the advice of General Gage. Warned that the British army in North America even with the help of the Navy, was far too small to subjugate the colonists, that the Americans would fight and fight well, that France and Spain would seize an opportunity to strike at Britain in distress. They nonetheless chose to wage war against unruly subjects who resided beyond the Atlantic. They intended to save the empire in their own short-sighted way. They sent orders to gauge which quickly brought on hostilities, and then an ever-widening conflict that raged for eight years, ending in disastrous defeat for Britain. End quote. So begins chapter 12 of Britain and the Loss of Thirteen Colonies by John H. Alden. When reading that passage, it sets up exactly what I want to cover in this episode what happened in late 1774 and early 1775 that led Britain to settle on a military response in America. One of the key factors over those months was the looming parliamentary elections. Elections had last taken place in 1768, and according to the Septennial Act, a parliament could not last for more than seven years, meaning an election had to take place by 1775. By the late summer of 1774, it was clear to Lord North there was a major crisis brewing across the Atlantic, so North decided that he needed to act decisively. If he waited, his popularity could plummet in 1775. So, before the British public realised what was happening... On September 30th, 1774, the King announced a general election for a new Parliament, which was to convene at Westminster on the 29th of November. The plan worked. 280 seats were needed for a majority in the 558-seat chamber. The King's friends now included Grenvilleites and Bedfordites, and formed a voting bloc loyal to North and the King. Indeed, at least 170 were in government pay. A dissenting vote by an MP would be met with swift retribution. Added to this were the Tories, the independent country gentlemen. They liked North, he had reduced expenditure and was a country gentleman too, and an Anglican. They had no sympathy for the Americans. It was a similar situation in the Lords. The nobility were also country gentlemen, and like those in the Commons, regarded the Americans as their inferiors. 
There were those close to the king, and then there were the Anglican bishops. In short, Parliament was in the king and North's hands. If only they were skilled enough to use them. The problem was that British politics had, over the course of the 18th century, slipped into a comfortable malaise. I've talked previously how the dominance of Whiggism and Britain's victory in the Seven Years' War had produced a leadership skilled in parliamentary politics, but distinctly lacking in imagination. The men of the governing class were content with Britain exactly how it was, and saw the Americans as arrogant commoners, little better than Cromwellians. Even years after the Stamp Act crisis, they still hadn't understood that the British could not force the Americans into submission. The exception was the Rockinghamites, including Edmund Burke and the ailing Chatham. The government received the reports of the First Continental Congress on December 13th, 1774, but the papers were not presented to Parliament until January 19th, 1775. Chatham, his help in rapid decline, still managed to speak in the Lords to criticise North's actions and proposed that Gage be ordered to remove his troops from Boston. Rockingham supported this, but the motion was defeated, 68-18. Chatham was not to be defeated. He consulted with Dr Franklin and started to organise a course of action. The colonies must remain subordinate to Parliament and the Crown, that went without saying, but Chatham was now convinced that Parliament could not tax the American colonies. He proposed that all legislation passed after 1763 be repealed, with the exception of elements of the 1775 Mutiny Act, as Britain still needed to be able to station troops in the colonies, but never to infringe on American liberties. Parliament should retain control over maritime commerce, and a second Continental Congress should be held to solve the problem of raising revenue, but on American terms. Chatham would even meet many of the demands of the First Continental Congress, which we discussed last week. And while Dartmouth, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, was impressed with the proposals, he was one of the few to view them favourably. Many bitterly opposed them. The Earl of Sandwich, who was the First Lord of the Admiralty, suggested that the document was actually the creation of Franklin, as a British peer couldn't have written such a thing. He even referred to Franklin as one of Britain's bitterest and most mischievous enemies. While Chatham considered Franklin the equal of Newton, the more common opinion was that of Earl Gower. Namely, the First Continental Congress was nothing less than an act of treason. Chatham's proposal was again defeated in the Lords. 61 votes against 32. Over the course of February, Parliament received many petitions, both from merchants and manufacturers, urging a reconciliation to end the American boycott of British goods. But in a sense, it was too late. The opposition in the Commons warned there was no guarantee of British victory in America. If it did come to war, it could be assumed that the French and Spanish would aid the colonists, perhaps even the Dutch. 
Charles James Fox and John Wilkes made passionate speeches opposing conflict, while Burke made a proposal that Britain not force the issue of taxation. It was defeated by a massive majority. Not that any of this mattered anyway. The cabinet had already decided that Gage should be ordered to use force against the Massachusetts rebels, but we'll return to that in a moment. As far back as November 18th, 1774, George III wrote to North, The New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. Crucially, this was nearly a month before word of the Continental Congress's decisions reached London. So, if they would not defuse the situation, what action would the British take? Well, in an action that seems bizarre in retrospect, they didn't think they needed to send over a large army. After the Seven Years' War, many believed that the Americans were not a fighting people. This was a line being asserted by some British generals as late as 1777. Gage, the man on the ground, knew otherwise and he asked for reinforcements, but the king's advisers thought him timid. They plotted on replacing Gage as commander-in-chief with their old friend Amherst, but he wisely declined the position. Instead, they sent three generals who were, for the time being, to assist Gage. William Howe, Henry Clinton, and John Burgoyne. The crucial day was January 25th, when the cabinet decided its plan. Secret orders were sent to Gage, instructing him to move against the rebels of Massachusetts. Reinforcements would be sent, but fewer than Gage requested. He should raise a loyalist force from amongst the Americans. He could arrest those taking part in the Continental Congress. As far as the cabinet was concerned, they were already at war, and it was better to strike now than before the Americans were prepared. These plans were, quite frankly, ridiculous. If the British were to win at all, they would need strong reinforcements and a naval blockade. Trying to fight a land war in their current circumstances was nothing less than a recipe for disaster. While these orders were written up, they were not sent to America for another six weeks. Over February and March 1775, Parliament gave support to the government's position. By crushing majorities, it voted to send the generals, enlarge the army, and declare Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. A token effort of avoiding conflict was made by offering to exempt colonies from parliamentary taxation if they voted to provide the taxation, but this was worded in such a manner that it seemed designed to be rejected. With negotiations going nowhere, and because his wife had recently died, Franklin left London for Philadelphia. Winter storms further delayed the sending of instructions, finally reaching Boston on April 16th, 1775. Three things were immediately clear to Gage. One, his advice had been rejected. Two, he must act with the troops he had. Three, 
there would be no negotiated settlement. This was war. Indeed, three days later would be the shot that was heard around the world at Lexington and Concord. But that will wait until next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Yeah.